episode 28 of the Water Break podcast. Here's your host, Heather Jennings. Hi, welcome to Water Break, where we try to bridge the gap between water operators and engineers. In today's episode, we're going to discuss fundamental backflow and cross-connection issues with potable water supplies with Gary, the backflow nerd, McLaren at HydroCorp, the Safe Water Authority. Born in Flint, Michigan, Gary started with HydroCorp in 2005 and has experienced many aspects of the company from inspecting over 4,000 commercial and industrial facilities for unprotected backflow hazards, consulting that led to an adoption of over 110 Midwestern municipal water systems cross-connection control programs to the development of Safe Water EDU, the nation's only water operator continuing education school dedicated to the world of backflow prevention. Gary is certified in cross-connection control surveying and backfill prevention program administration by the American Society of Sanitary Engineering. Welcome, Gary. Hi, Heather. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad you've come because I know this is an issue that a lot of people deal with and, and have to consider either whether you're an engineer or whether you're an operator. So this is a perfect topic for conversation. Yeah, really is. Did I mention I was born in Flint, Michigan? Wow. What a yeah. roller coaster. I'll tell you what, you know, we lived in the city until I was about four years old. Then we moved to the country on a private well. Never in my life growing up on Lake Road in Montrose, Michigan, outside of Flint, I uh-huh. thought that I would be speaking about the hazards of water systems and that Flint, Michigan is on the radar at a national level because of uh, the unfortunate events that unraveled there over the last couple of years. So I, I was looking at that, too. I was like, oh, <laughs> we're going to yeah. talk about that. <laughs> Flint Osteopathic Hospital, downtown Flint, Michigan. Yep. Hard to believe. So, you know, I mentioned that in my classes and other talks because lead pipes have been around for a long time. We've known about this. It was Flint that really peeled back that layer on the onion and and pronounced it to the industry. Look, we have to do something about this. Many communities were doing something about lead lines, but boy, did it really blow the roof off that topic. And look at how our water industry has changed. Now, when we talk about backflow prevention, cross-connection control, it's very similar in, in the nature of hazard, whereas it's out of sight, out of mind until that perfect storm. And when we talk about backflow prevention and cross-connection control, we're talking about an inherent hydraulic problem that all mm-hmm. public water systems are prone to. And that's a loss of pressure or an increase of pressure throughout their system that can cause backflow. And everyone notices when that happens, oh, typically. Wow. It's usually an extreme situation. <laughs> what is the difference between cross connections and backflow prevention? Because a lot of people talk about that synonymously. They sure do, frequently. And so the, the key difference is we have cross connections out there that are normal. They're hazardous mm-hmm. in many cases, but they are normal connections throughout our distribution system, throughout mostly our buildings, where other things besides the drinking fountain and the kitchen sink, things are connected to the water supply and we're using water for something other than you know, drinking and or culinary use, okay? Mm-hmm. Boiler systems, uh, different chemical processes and manufacturing, medical, all over the place. Those cross connections are needed. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're fine, but they must be protected by a backflow prevention. And that's how cross connections and backflow, backflow prevention go hand in hand. When I was doing pipeline design, we have a lot of Arizona rules and regulations that we have to follow in designing just to ensure the safety. So yeah, people are aware of it, but things don't always go the way we think it will. No, you're spot on there, Heather. And when you said you design, unfortunately from the design process and installation, 
mm-hmm. sometimes and not pointing fingers, the way things are designed and intended in the real world, the physical real world, when we start to look at piping, especially aging piping, yeah. we discover problems that should never have been there from the start. And they certainly were not in the design process, but for one reason or another, we have those cross connections that are unprotected, meaning there's no backflow preventer. And that's yeah. the real hazard that utilities must, and in many cases, are required to closely monitor and detect to prevent a contamination. You know, Heather, in, in the perfect world, if we were following regulations and plumbing code and everything was installed to those regulations and those codes, we wouldn't have this discussion. Our company wouldn't be in business. I don't know if you can hear my smile because, uh, yeah, I'm like in a perfect world. I'm like, I 100% agree. (laughs) So backflow is when it unintentionally flows in reverse. What is back siphonage? So really there's two conditions that, Mm -hmm. that happen throughout a public water system and within a building. You have the potential for back siphonage. That means a siphon effect. Like if you're using a straw and a soft drink, you're Mm -hmm. siphoning that fluid up into your mouth. And that's, that can happen and does happen throughout distribution systems. When we have main breaks or other sudden uh, drops in pressure, there can be, and has been a, a brief or sustained reverse flow of water. And that's where contaminants can be introduced into that supply either at that point or throughout. And when things are repressurized, you have a potential contaminant, and this has happened many times before, you have a contaminant Mm -hmm. at the tap. Unfortunately, there's no red lights, no alerts go off, and people have consumed contaminated water from backflow events, and terrible things have happened as a result. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You mentioned in here uh, talking about the main breaks for fire hydrants and stuff like that. I was in one city where they put out that notice, hey, we're going to be doing this. You're going to see stuff in your water, mm-hmm. in your sinks. And I'm like, that's not cool. Yeah, it's well, you know, that and that flushing is necessary. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. when main breaks happen, there's no scheduled. Uh, not that I know of uh, main breaks are usually not scheduled and often they happen yeah. after hours and, <laughs> and it's an emergency situation. One, to stop the 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 leak fix it and then mm-hmm. to make sure that the water is clean before people begin to consume it and the timing of that is typically just horrendous the timing meaning it's an emergency and uh, people are not notified in time so in some cases but yeah. you know utilities have those precautions that when they know there's a break they they follow that protocol Gary why don't you give it to us simply you know Heather simply put cross connections are common but widely varying connections throughout the potable water systems and drinking water systems. It's that missing backflow preventer, that unprotected cross connection. That's the real concern here. You know, I was quite surprised doing some research earlier this year, uh, some mm-hmm. public EPA data. There are over 46,000 public water systems, large, medium, and small size, over 46,000 around the nation that are all subjected to backflow in these normal hydraulic yeah. conditions. But because the each that each state has varying rules on this topic, we often find that there's confusion in the industry yeah. on really how to approach this subject as a, as a public water systems. Now, some states are very clear the requirements of what utilities must be doing on this topic for cross-connection control and backflow prevention. Other states, not quite so specific. But at the end of the day, we know that we have to deliver safe drinking water to the end flowing tap. Unfortunately, a lot of these cross connections and where the backflow preventers are located are downstream of that metered service connection, meaning inside the building, where often Mm -hmm. 
utilities don't have easy access to or knowledge of. So there's a lot of mystery within this topic, cross connections. Where are they? I can tell you this. It's more than just that backflow preventer that a utility gets a test report for. Many of us have heard of that. Uh This topic is broader than the testing of a backflow preventer. That's one key component. But we're talking about a system-wide activity program, really, when we when we speak about cross connection control, it's it's numerous activities beyond just the testing of backflow preventers. You listed here potential of how many service connections? It, that comment was kind of mind-boggling here. It really is. So get this: over forty-six thousand municipal public water systems, but within that each system, they have you know hundreds, thousands of con- yeah. uh, of service connections, metered service connections. Typically, that number is. A little over 66 and a half million service connections, meaning buildings being supplied water from a public water system, 66 million, over 66 and a half million. That number, that really shocked me. And, I, and because I come from I come from our field division at our uh-huh. company doing site surveys, I think in terms of the potential problems out there because of what we see on our day-to-day site surveys, we find problems for utilities that they don't know about. The building owners, they correct the the unprotected cross connections, eliminating the hazard. It's an improvement to the water system. But when I saw that number, 66 and a half million, wow. Uh, I, I thought this problem is bigger than what we toot the horn about. We, we need to talk more about it. And it really starts with education from the utility to the to the consumer, the water customer, because often the building owner, the consumers out there, they are simply not one, interested or aware of this topic. Hey, my water can go backwards. Are you crazy? Yeah. Yeah. I was sitting there looking at that and I'm like, that kind of, it just seems so overwhelming, Mm. you know, just in for the operator, I would think that just, oh, oh, I only have like a hundred thousand connections. Oh, fabulous. Right. (laughs) We don't see very many people get up in the morning excited for that. And like you mentioned, the regulations varying from state to state. So Mm -hmm. what works in one place and then even sometimes cities, you know, the larger cities will have their own versions or in addition to going from one city in a metropolitan area to another city, there could be confusion. Confusion and often from just between town to town or state borders, there's dramatic difference on what a utility is doing to eliminate, detect cross connections and monitor and and help prevent backflow because of those regulations. What's critical is that at minimum, utilities are doing something to identify undetected cross connections. You know, where we know that backflow preventers exist and the building owners are having them tested and maintained properly, great. Awesome thumbs up. The elephant in the room here, though, is undetected cross connections. Our utilities, our building owners identifying their own problems. And that's what I try to shed light on because those are the situations that until you're on the news, people don't know about it. People don't put, uh, you know, time or energy or definitely money into those problems. Who wants to hear about the, you know, the, the car engine that's on its way to blowing a head gasket? No one wants to hear that. We all realize our, our cars are deteriorating in performance as they age. Okay. So we try to focus more on preventing that contamination versus just monitoring your existing backflow preventers. That's, it's important, but we've got to do more as utilities around the nation. Well, and I think the piece that it is in your notes that I thought were really important is the part about record keeping and ongoing data management and looking into corrective action enforcement, especially with like the, the lead and copper ruling 
that we're having to deal with. Yeah, certainly. Other, the elements involved in, in a comprehensive cross-connection control program. Now, some states require this. Other states don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, American Water Works Association does recommend and provides guidelines. In addition to EPA provides guidelines, but it, it comes down to more than just the backflow preventer and more than just testing. And record mm-hmm. keeping is essential and, and data management most of all, corrective action, meaning when problems are identified, they must be corrected by the building owner. And in a good program, will identify and it will locate mm-hmm. uh, cross connections that were previously undetected. And that corrective action cycle is, uh, you know, an unmentioned guarantee of an improvement to the water system versus just a regulatory burden. Personally, I'm like, ooh, I should have you come by my house. <laughs> But I mean, you also need someone who's certified to ensure that it's correct, right? You know, to test it and so forth. Well, to test the backflow preventers, yes. But when we're talking about identifying cross connections, some states, again, require that, like in Denver and and other states. Mm -hmm. uh, Well, I should say Colorado, not the the state of Denver. (laughs) uh, No worries. Although they do have a very comprehensive program, I can tell you that personally, in in Denver. uh, Uh And they've really led the state of Colorado in a cross-connection control program. And you do have to have requirements and certifications to uh, to test backflow pre- preventers and, and to survey in some cases. And really what it comes down to is it's more than just data in a, in a spreadsheet or a software. You know, unfortunately, I don't know of any software that will detect cross connections. They have lots of software yeah. out there will manage backflow prevention data in awesome yeah. ways. But we're talking about looking up at pipes, investigating and identifying those unknown problems that exist in many Many buildings, because of aged piping, mis- misapplied installations, wrong backflow preventers for certain scenarios, a lot of different situations out there that leave water systems prone to hazards and contamination that they simply are not aware of until somebody starts to look. And that's the key part of a cross-connection control program is some mm-hmm. sort of investigation inspection we call it a survey because you're not touching anything you're just visually looking for potential Uh problems reporting out to the building owner and completing that cycle of eliminating the hazard so we don't have to respond to it in the nature of a contamination okay so we've talked about what it is and who's like responsible for things but what do we actually do to prevent it yeah. Well, physically, it's the backflow preventers that will prevent backflow. And that's you know prescribed in, in our state to state plumbing codes, mm-hmm. varying different ways. But, you know, all state plumbing codes uh, require backflow prevention when things are connected to our potable water supplies throughout buildings. The plumbing code states you got to have a backflow preventer maybe of this type or that type. That's all within the plumbing codes. But the reality is. When we look at pipes, we don't find that to be the case and, um, as far as full protection throughout. So what should be done? Number one, public awareness. Spread the word locally. Utilities should be doing that or begin to do that on this topic to their consumers, especially the non-residential service connections, factories, mm-hmm. you know, beyond residential. And involve them in the local program versus it being just a regulatory slap on the wrist for not complying. We really need to involve the water customers in the program. And that really starts with public awareness on the topic. Just for my little part, when I've been like in the 
one of the warehouse stores or whatever. And we were walking by. I'm like, hey, that's a backflow preventer. The kids are like, mom, please. (laughs) (laughs) They just don't get as excited about it. Sounds like a backflow nerd. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good thing. I think it's important. All right, let's talk about how sizing and length of pipe come into play. You know, the types of materials. Let's start that discussion. Yeah, when we talk about what's conveying the drinking water throughout our systems, piping materials is on the observation list. I'll say when we survey a building, we're looking at are the right materials that are required by plumbing code utilized in this system. And on older buildings, we do find black pipe and other piping materials that are simply not intended to convey potable water. Now, I got to clarify something, Heather. I say potable. You've said potable. Uh, tomato, tomato, right? Yep. And other uh, people say culinary. So there you go. As long as you know, we're talking about drinking water. Drinking water, right? We're we're uh, good. Right, exactly. Public education starts there at the local level on on cross connection control, and it really should come from the public water system themselves, pronouncing that hey, we're delivering safe drinking water. You should be aware of these potential hazards. You know, earlier, Heather, you mentioned, hey, boy, I wonder what's in my house for backflow prevention and cross connections. Well, everyone yeah. listening to this right now, in your own home, your residence, or if you're at your office, you're surrounded by backflow preventers, whether you know it or not. And a good example is the air gap at your bathroom or kitchen sink. That is a form of backflow prevention that we overlook in society. We don't think of that as a backflow preventer. It's one of the most common and the most important backflow preventer throughout buildings, hands down, the most common. Because think about it, where are sinks? They're everywhere. But that is a backflow preventer. And often when we talk about in this industry, in the waterworks industry, when we're talking about backflow preventers, many people only think about that type of backflow preventer. It's got a nickname, the RPZ or the RP, Reduced Pressure Principle Backflow Preventer. It's a mouthful. But Uh there's other backflow preventers that are equally as important as those testable type backflow preventers. And by this, I mean your typical exterior garden hose spigot on your home or your business. That's a vital outlet for cross connections. Yeah, water coming out, but things can go backwards in a backflow event. Mm -hmm. And there's many documented cases and incidences where people have been harmed or worse by a simple garden hose that was not protected by a less than $15 vacuum breaker, it's called. It's a type of backflow preventer. It doesn't require testing. Mm -hmm. Typically, it's on your outside hose picket, or if you have an older home, you may not have one. So a little homework test after the uh, podcast listen, go take a look at your exterior hose bib connections and ask the question, is there a backflow preventer here? Do I see an apparatus of some sort? It's a simple little device. Google it. We are surrounded in our societies by backflow preventers. We're just, you know, often uninformed as in as a society about how important these safety devices are to protect our water supply. When we were designing a sink before, we had to have that inch gap minimum. there. Yes. Yeah, yeah, as a minimum. And at first I was like, as a brand new engineer, wasn't even thinking about you know, the water coming up into it because why would it do that? Right. And then, you know, as I got more experience, I was like, oh my gosh, that makes so much sense. I'm yeah. glad smart people are on top of this. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it's a very simple, it's almost too simple, right? The water can go backwards, sure, but we're not thinking about it because we, your typical consumer looks at that kitchen sink when they're getting a glass of water mm-hmm. and they think that's where the water comes from, right? The water comes from my sink, not four miles away, 10 miles away from a distribution plant through miles and miles of piping, also connected to the factory, the restaurants, you know, other facilities. 
on the way to my house and my kitchen sink. People don't think like that. But when we start to ask that question, hey, how could our water be affected along the way to my tap? Wow. You start to look at those numbers we talked about earlier, and it becomes overwhelming. That's why programs need to start slow, become educated, look at your current rules, take a step forward with local public education on this topic. Good thing is you don't need to reinvent the wheel. There's lots of public information on cross connections out there, backflow prevention that utilities can utilize. So the leak or, or break or whatever is fixed, the plumbing's been fixed or you know the line has been fixed or something like that, and the backflow preventer has been put in place. How is those even tested in the field? Well, when we talk about the, a backflow preventer, when it's tested in the field, that has to be performed by a certified, typically a state will issue some sort of license or certification for that specific activity to mm-hmm. test specific types of backflow preventers. And it's typically a 40-hour course that a tester goes through to get that accreditation. Some states require that the person is a plumber. Some states like Wisconsin, other states, you don't have to be a plumber to test, not just a physical test with a pressure differential gauge to make sure the backflow preventers work. As far as the leak and the repair, I believe utilities have very detailed protocols that once they do fix a leak, they notify you know, local uh, water customers of potential, you know, of when it's safe to drink the water. I think that's a separate protocol we're talking about. But as far as the backflow preventers, some are testable. And they require testing, typically mm-hmm. annually again. Other backflow preventers like the air gap or your garden hose spigot on the exterior house, that backflow preventer does not require a test of any sort. They're not intended to be tested, okay? And therefore, they have limited use, though. And this is where during cross-connection surveys, observation of is the right backflow preventer there? Is it installed mm-hmm. correctly? Is the condition that it's protecting appropriate for that type of backflow preventer. Lots of questions go into that survey that uh, is beyond just that backflow preventer test. It's a document. Great. It's been tested. See you next year. Got it. Now I'm going to have to go take a picture of my uh, backyard and spick it and send it to you. That's what else you're good. <laughs> Got it. So there is way more to backflow prevention and cross-connection con- control than I think you teach whole courses on this, but were there any like lessons from the field or antidotes from the field that you've experienced? Boy, many. You know, my first few years with HydroCorp was in the field looking at pipes. Uh, and this is how I got this. I contracted, a, I think it's a good, I wouldn't call it a disease, an, an affection. Uh, it's uh, looking at pipes and finding those problems. Boy, I can't think of, of one other than uh, uh, often building owners do not want to hear problems about their water system that before you arrived, it was fine. Or my dad used to say it was hunky dory. Yeah. Yeah. And then we show up or a surveyor shows up, says you need to fix this. Oh, and by the way, you need to spend money. Building owners do not want to hear that. And and going back to that public education, it's important that building owners take ownership in their involvement Mm-hmm. in their plumbing and maintaining their plumbing. And many times they, they're they not concerned about their plumbing. And when an inspector or somebody comes along and says, you got to fix something, often that missing ingredient of education is not there to advise them and inform them, them of how important this is, protecting the water supply. So during our surveys, our site surveys, we, uh, we're doing an on-site education on the topic so that the building owner participates in compliance versus resists compliance. Oh, yeah. I've been some places that would have been like, 
like you said, you know, it's fine. The problem wasn't there until you said something. I'm like, right. I don't think saying something magically changed your piping. Right. But, you know, I'm an engineer, so what do I know, right? <laughs> oh, I, I, sometimes we know too much, you know, and, and it's, it becomes a challenge to convey to other people these other the, these situations that are problematic. They must be corrected. And, I, you know, overall, we find once we, we tell the story, the building owner understands, oh, I didn't know that. The light bulb goes yeah. off. There's compliance. And a lot of utilities hesitate to implement and enforce a comprehensive program because out of hesitancy from the water customer or resistance or that fear mm-hmm. of, you know, the high paying water customer that buys a lot, a lot of water, high paying. I mean, they, they buy a lot of water. They pay a lot, you know, for a lot for that water. Boy, yeah. why do we want to tell them that they, uh, they have problems. They're our best customer and utilities must look at their own liability and their risk involved in this topic. And utilities are directly linked to the liability Okay, we're required mm-hmm. as utilities to deliver to the end flowing tap. That's generally where we, as, as a society, we expect expect drinking water safe at our tap, not at the sampling points, not at the meter, but yeah. at our taps. And 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 so it presents a unique challenge because these problems that I'm talking about are not underground. Typically, they're not within the main distribution system. They are downstream of the service connection, lawn irrigation systems, boilers, car wash equipment. You name it, it goes on and on. These connections are everywhere around us, and we have to ensure that they're protected with backflow prevention. I appreciate the information and education, especially with the conversations we've had when we first met. I wanted to make sure that we covered this just because, as you said, it's it's hidden, but it's known at the same time, but it's hidden. Yeah. So, gosh, I really appreciate you coming and coming to talk to us about this. <laughs> it's been my pleasure. It's really been my pleasure. And I thank you for the opportunity to talk. And, uh, you know, I, since we met at the National Rural Water Association Conference there in uh, near D.C. earlier this yeah. year, I've been looking forward after we talked at our booth to uh, the opportunity to, to share this topic um, with your audience out there across the podcast platforms. Thanks, Heather. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, before we leave, we're going to do the Wanda's Water tidbit, but I want to remind our listeners that the information for HydroCorp will be in the, the show links as well. So feel free to reach out and grab Gary. He's pretty nerdy and he loves it, at least from what he's told me. Just switching over to the Wanda's Water Tidbit. This is the part of the show that I dedicate to my mom, Wanda. She sends me articles and bits of trivia over time, and it helps celebrate the unusual and sometimes even brilliant things about water. But Gary, today we're going to talk about beavers, a little bit of history on them and what they do for water and climate change. Now, have you ever seen a beaver in in real life? I have paddled next to one in a river about three years ago, and it was it was just a, a very interesting little creature. He seemed very curious. And mm-hmm. I also, you know, I have a, a small drone that I use for my own hobby uh, photography, and I and I knew where a beaver dam was about ten miles from our house, and I drove out there and I flew that drone about 50 feet above it. I did not get close to it, uh-huh. but looking at that footage, boy, are they builders? It's amazing. I'm curious what your tidbit is here, Heather. As you mentioned, great swimmers, they build the dams and so forth. I didn't know that they have oversized lungs that let them submerge for 15 minutes. And they can do that while swimming for half a mile and that they swim up to six miles per hour. I was like, 
that's a little faster. I'm a city kid. So I've only seen them in zoos or in cartoons and stuff like that. But what I want to cover today was by Christian Dewey. He's a soil and water scientist in Oregon State University. And he was performing a study in the field, uh, researching the way that the streams flows along the East River, which is a winding tributary of Colorado River. And he was just looking at it to see you know, scientifically what the flows change, what impact that had on the environment in the area. And the project was going well. And then the beavers took over and they built a dam across the river he was trying to study. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> I know. I was like, and one hand you're like, that's really odd. The other hand, you're like, nope, that's probably a normal thing for them. I'm envisioning the cartoon version of what you just uh, described. I know, right? Right. <laughs> um, I always hear the whistling voice in, uh, that they always give the characters. But what he was looking for was the exchange of water and solutes, basically contaminants in the, the river channels. And the dam that was put in, how that changed river quality. And he said that the, the beavers maintained the dam for two months until it was swept away with you know mud and branches and so forth. But they found that the structure, the dam, flooded the surrounding soil, allowing the microbes, which I thought mm. was interesting, to wow. convert the excess nitrogen to harmless gas. I mean, that's what we do in wastewater plants all the time. But the beaver's dam actually provided that opportunity in the river. Wow. I know. <laughs> what they also found out was that that dam increased the nitrogen removal by 44% compared to their normal seasonal fluctuations. I was like, look at those beavers go. Yeah. And wow. <laughs> I was surprised. What I also found out was that with the warming temperatures and intensified aridification, that's a harder word to say than you think. The beavers were resurging. Mm. So you would think they would be dying off or whatever, but they're actually coming into play even more than they had before. Wow. Amazing when we step aside from and let nature do its thing. We are a small part of the program here. Yeah. Yeah. And just as another side note to this little vignette, mm. I found out that beavers have been around for millennia. Their predecessors, the paleocaster or ancient beaver, it was around longer than humans have been so far. Interesting. You know, I'm somewhat of also an archaeology uh, nerd, and uh, a lot of things have been revealed in the last 20 years that previously were not quite on the radar. And did you know that the term megafauna is quite interesting if you Google that? And there was a giant beaver, a megafauna giant beaver that was close to six feet tall. Heather, Google it. I I, I megafauna beaver. <laughs> oh, now, can you imagine? I think he does a little bit more. She does more than six miles an hour. But, uh, uh, probably. I, I wouldn't mess with a regular beaver. <laughs> I, I'm not going to mess with the one that's six feet tall. Fortunately, I think that was about 15 to 18,000 years ago or probably beyond that. But OK, so we're safe. Tidbit. Yeah. You know, like a little resurgence, the beavers mm -hmm. could take over the world. <laughs> well, I Greatly appreciate your time, Gary. It's been fun talking with you. Likewise. We want to encourage all of our, our listeners to contact Gary if you have any questions. His contact information will be in the show notes and as well as his website. And you can find all the interesting things we found out about beavers in those show notes as well. Thanks again, Gary. My pleasure. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Water Break Podcast brought to you by Probiotic Solutions. Probiotic Solutions offers a broad-spectrum line of biostimulants and nutrient products for bioremediation of water, wastewater, and soil. 
You can find more information about our products and the show notes for this podcast at probiotic.com.